You can follow our reading today on the new sheet or the overhead screens or printed all electronic Bibles if you have them. Our reading today is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verses 14 to 33. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me, to be a minister of Christ, Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy, by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Michael. My name's Nat Rosner. I'm the Senior Assistant Minister here at Carlton and it's really lovely to be back together this afternoon after being away on convention last weekend. We're looking at Romans 15, which Michael just read for us. As he said, the passage is in the news sheet and there's also an outline there if you'd like to follow along. This week I've been thinking about what criteria we use in making decisions. We make decisions all the time, don't we? Some really big decisions, some smaller decisions. And I think 
the type of decision that we're making will impact the criteria that we use. But I reckon there's one criteria that we use in almost every decision that we make, and that is, does it work? Will this decision work? So think about buying a car, for example. You might think about what size car do I want? What colour do I want? Do I want four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive? Uh, uh, what, uh, do I want seat warmers? My brother-in-law recently bought a car just like this. Uh, it's a pretty rugged-looking ute, uh, four-wheel drive, and he got it with seat warmers, which kind of just doesn't work in my mind, a rugged four-wheel drive ute with seat warmers. But even uh, with all of that, what he really wanted to know was, does this car work? And it's not just cars or other things. If you're in a relationship with someone, you will want it to be working. We all have different values by which we assess whether a relationship works, but we want to be in a relationship that works. It's true with government policy. There's been lots of conversation recently about whether the government should go ahead with their proposed stage three tax cuts. And the bottom line is we want a tax policy that works. Again, different people will have different ways of assessing that, but at the bottom line, people want a policy that works. As Christians, I think we want to be sure that our faith works that what we believe works? It's a really big question. I think it's been underlying some of the conversation that's been going on over the last couple of weeks about Andrew Thorburn and Essendon. And different people will have different ways of assessing whether Christian faith works. That's part of the complication of that whole conversation. But I think there's a really common question here, especially for those of us who are Christians. Does Christian faith work? Does the gospel work? And if it does work, how does it work? Here in Romans 15, Paul is starting to close off his letter to the church in Rome. He reflects on the shape of his ministry. He reflects on what he said in his letter so far and in particular he picks up some of the themes that he raised right back in the first chapter of Romans. He tells them that he's been wanting to come and visit them for years, but that he finally now has a concrete plan. He wants to pass through Rome on his way to Spain. Sounds like a pretty pleasant travel itinerary to me. Paul is following up what he wrote in the first half of Romans 15. There he articulated God's great gospel plan to bring the Gentiles to hope in Israel's Messiah, to bring both Gentiles and Jews together into a united gospel community of grace. As he does all of this, it's really evident that Paul is convinced that the gospel works. But how does it work? What is Paul's gospel strategy? And what can we learn for ourselves? We're going to take a closer look now into Romans 15 to unpack some of this. First of all, we see here that the gospel works through proclamation. Paul writes in verse 15 and 16, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. And again in verses 19 and 20, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. We hear Paul's particular call to be a minister to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel where it hadn't been preached before. But more broadly than that, we see through Paul here uh, something that we also see through the apostles in the book of Acts, that proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God is at the heart of gospel strategy. Proclamation is the method, the content is the gospel, which Paul opened with in Romans chapter 1. There he said the gospel had been promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures that the gospel was about his son Jesus who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he went on in verse 16 to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So the gospel is Jesus, the Son of God, who died and was raised to life in power. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God to save people from the consequences of our rejection of God, to give us the gift of righteousness in Christ. This is what Paul has proclaimed from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. You can see on this map the orange is the uh, Roman Empire and Paul has gone from Jerusalem on the side of the Mediterranean Sea all the way up to Illyricum, which is circled on the map. He covered a lot of ground and he covered it because he was committed to proclaiming the message of the gospel. He was convinced that the gospel works through proclamation. Romans chapter 10 made this clear as well. Paul asked there, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? Over the years, I've heard some uh, Christian people talk about the gospel and the Bible as the thing that got them going in their faith. But then they've sometimes expressed the idea that you can move on from that, that you don't need to kind of keep hearing that again and again. But hearing the gospel once isn't the end of the story for us as Christians. In verse 15, Paul says, I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. The Bible, where we hear the gospel, isn't just a textbook to get on top of. It's not like a specialist subject area in the expert round of hard quiz, if you've seen that quiz show. The Bible is the living and active word of God we hear in Hebrews 4. The Bible is God-breathed, Paul says in 2 Timothy. Proclamation of the gospel is what brings people to Jesus. And proclamation of the gospel is essential to keep us in Christ. It's one of the ways that God works in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Paul saw this 
in his own ministry. Through gospel proclamation, he saw Gentiles coming to faith, as we heard in our Bible reading. He saw it in the Christians at Rome. He describes them in verse 14 as full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. God has changed who they are through the gospel being proclaimed to them. But they're not perfect yet. Paul has also seen this need to keep reminding them of some things. The gospel works as it's proclaimed to bring us to Christ. The gospel works as it's proclaimed to keep us in Christ and to shape us like Christ. That's why I'm standing here right now. That's why our services are shaped the way they are here at St Jude's. That's why we run Christianity Explored regularly. I see this really clearly uh, as we preach sermons at St Jude's, as we do something like convention last weekend. This morning at 10am we heard from a couple of people how they had responded to some of the talks and seminars at convention and they reflected on how some of what they had heard had shaped their thinking and shaped their behaviour in this week following convention. People are changed when they hear the good news of Jesus being proclaimed. As well as working through proclamation, the gospel works with power. In verse 18, Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. It's not that Paul himself is powerful. His testimony is of what Christ has accomplished through him. It is God who is powerful. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work as the gospel is proclaimed. And that power is mediated through what Paul has said and done. He's proclaimed the gospel. Those are the words that he's reflecting on. And he's done signs and wonders. I think this is a phrase that we feel sometimes uncertain about. What were signs and wonders? And should we expect to see them today? We find some help with this in the book of Acts. There in chapter 14, we hear that Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, that's at Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And some of the things uh, that Paul did, some of those signs and wonders are described in the book of Acts. He uh, healed people from sickness, He delivered people from demonic possession. On one occasion, he raised someone from the dead. But what's really important to notice, I think, is the purpose of these signs and wonders. They were to confirm the message of the gospel of grace that Paul was proclaiming, to make clear the presence and power of God as the message of the gospel went out to the nations. So should we expect to see signs and wonders today? I don't think there's a kind of open and shut yes or no answer to that question. Certainly God is still able to empower someone who is proclaiming the gospel uh, to do signs and wonders. And presumably God might do that particularly if those signs and wonders were needed to confirm the message of the gospel. 
but if the signs and wonders weren't needed for that message to be confirmed or if they might even distract from the message of the gospel of grace, perhaps God wouldn't work in those ways. I think what's more important to notice here is that what Christ has accomplished through all that Paul has said and done has happened through the power of the Spirit of God. The power of the Spirit of God was at work in Paul's preaching as well as in the signs and wonders he performed. And as a result of God's power at work, the Gentiles have come to Christ. We see it there in verse 21. Those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. It's a quote from Isaiah 52. And Paul is saying here that the Gentiles who hadn't heard of the suffering servant uh, proclaimed in Isaiah have now come to see and understand who he is through the proclamation of the gospel in Paul's life. And they haven't just seen and understood. Their lives have been changed. In verse 18, the Gentiles have been led to obey God by Christ using what Paul has said and done. We still see this happening today. Not everyone who hears the gospel responds to it in these ways, but some people certainly do. Maybe you can see this in your own life, reflecting back on uh, your hearing of the gospel of God and how God has changed you as you've heard it. Maybe you can see this in the lives of some of your friends or your family members. Whatever you make of Andrew Thorburn and the whole situation with Essendon, uh, Andrew Thorburn gave this testimony about the power of God in his life in something that he wrote. My faith is central to who I am, he said. Since coming to faith in Jesus 20 years ago, I have seen profound change in my life and I believe God has made me a better husband, father and friend. It has also helped me become a better leader. That is because at the centre of my faith is the belief that you should create a community and care for people because they are created by and loved by God and have a deep intrinsic value. The power of God changes people's lives through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel works through proclamation. It works with power and the gospel also works through partnership. Verse 23, Now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul wants the Christians in Rome to partner with him in taking the gospel to Spain. Paul doesn't specify here exactly what assistance he wants from the Christians at Rome. We can speculate. Maybe he would have asked for transport, for travel companions, maybe for financial assistance, maybe for letters of introduction. But clearly Paul is hoping for their practical partnership with him in this journey that he's hoping to take to Spain. As we read this section of Romans, we also hear of another gospel partnership that Paul reflects on. This is the financial partnership between the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia and the uh, Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians 
who were struggling financially in Jerusalem. Paul writes a lot more about this financial partnership in 1 Corinthians 16 and in 2 Corinthians 8, but he gives a summary here in verse 27. The Christians in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. This is a beautiful example of a financial partnership that would be a tangible expression of the united community of God's grace, that is the church. We don't really have that kind of Gentile and Jewish division in our churches now, do we? But we certainly have socio-economic divisions or differences in our churches. And so I think there's a question for all of us in this. Uh, a question about how we can best use our financial resources in partnership with other Christians who are lacking. Might that be in Melbourne? Might it be beyond Melbourne? Are there some in our own church who would appreciate financial support? We already do this in relation to our global mission partners. I guess closer to home we also partner financially with our uni church congregation and with our estates congregation. Those are two communities who probably don't have the financial capacity to support the ministry to them. And so it's great that some of us and some at 10am are able to give uh, to support those ministries. I'm really thankful that God is working in our community here at St Jude's in those ways. It would be great for us to keep looking out for ways that we can financially partner in the work of the gospel. We can also do that in practical ways. And there are lots of possibilities in this, uh, in this way of partnering in the gospel as well. Often this happens with global mission partners when they're home uh, from wherever they're serving. Uh, sometimes they ask for help with a car to drive, sometimes for somewhere to stay. There are always practical things to be done around St Jude's so that the things that we do in ministry can happen each week. Gospel partnership in practical ways, in financial ways, is really essential in enabling the preaching of the gospel to take place. The gospel works through proclamation. The gospel works with power. The gospel works in partnership. And finally, the gospel works as people pray. Paul urges the Christians at Rome to pray for him. You can hear the intensity of his appeal. Verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. There's a beautiful Trinitarian shape to Paul's appeal here. By our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, pray to God for me. And Paul characterises his ministry as a struggle. I think we're sometimes taken by surprise when ministry is a struggle, when what we're trying to do here as a church is a struggle, when we hear from a global mission partner that they are struggling in what they're doing. We can be surprised when we struggle to live Christian lives day by day. But we shouldn't be surprised. Paul is really frank 
about some of the difficulties he's faced. Uh, and he says it here really clearly. His ministry was a struggle. And that is why he reached out to the Romans and asked them to pray for him in that struggle. And he's really specific here about what he'd like prayer for. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. Now if you have a look at Acts uh, chapters 20 to 28 we know that God answered these prayers that Paul asked for although the answer maybe wasn't exactly as Paul had anticipated. If you read those chapters, we see that Paul took years rather than months to arrive in Rome. And that journey nearly cost him his life. So on the way to Rome, Paul suffered beatings. He was nearly lynched by a mob. He was almost murdered. He was kept in prison unfairly and he suffered a shipwreck. That is probably not what Paul had in mind when he asked for the Romans to pray for him in this journey. But God answered his prayers or their prayers in the end. God brought Paul to Rome and through all that happened to him on that journey, people were brought to Christ through the gospel. For us, prayer is a really vital way that we can support the work of the gospel here at St Jude's that we can support the work of the gospel further afield in Melbourne and also overseas. I'm going to just give a shameless plug now for our monthly St Jude's prayer meeting. I know you've heard us talk about it before. Uh, This is a one-hour prayer meeting on the first Monday of each month. So if you're committed to coming as often as you could, that would mean maybe uh, up to 12 hours of praying for the work of the gospel each year here at St Jude's, around Melbourne and for our global mission partners around the world. That's a great investment in praying. We also produce a booklet of those prayer points so if you can't make it along or if you'd like to pray more than that, you can pick up one of those booklets in the foyer each month. We can pray in our connect groups like this. We can pray with a friend, pray by ourselves. Pray for the work of the gospel is what Paul urges us here. Brothers and sisters, Paul is convinced that the gospel works, that it works through proclamation, that it works powerfully, that it works as people partner together and also that it works as people pray. Perhaps you wonder though, despite Paul's conviction, whether the gospel really works or whether it still works now. You don't know if a car works until you try to drive it, do you? Or if a tax policy works until you implement it. The gospel is like that too. So let me encourage you today to give the gospel a go. Maybe to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, to read the Bible for the first time, to try praying for the first time. Or if you've been a Christian for a long time, to keep giving the gospel a go, no matter how long You've been doing that. It's a challenge to keep listening well to the gospel being proclaimed, to keep listening well to the Bible, isn't it? But let's work at that challenge. 
Look out for the way that God is working in your life, shaping and changing you to be more like Jesus. Look out for the way that he's working in the lives of others and be encouraged by that. Find ways to partner in the work of the gospel and let's keep praying, joining the struggle for the gospel in prayer. I want to finish with two anecdotes from one of our gospel mission partners and the names have been changed. I've taken out any details uh, that could identify them. The first is a story about a young Korean woman, Nina, and she moved to where our, our mission partner is And she'd only been there for about two months and somehow came along to church. And as a result of what she heard at church, she then asked if she could join a small group because she wanted to find out more about Jesus. On another occasion, the minister's wife there had spoken really clearly about what it had meant for her to put her trust in Jesus when she was only 10 years old. There was a woman there called Louise who uh, put her faith in Jesus that night as she heard the minister's wife talk. Uh, She was a woman who was a local in that area. She worked as a psychologist. Her friend had invited her to church the week before and then had invited her to this event where the minister's wife was talking. And what she had heard at church and from the minister's wife had a huge impact on her. She had lots of questions, but her journey trusting in Jesus had begun. Brothers and sisters, Paul was convinced that the gospel works. We can see the gospel at work in our lives and in our world. So please join me now as I pray for its continued work through us and in us. God, thank you that the gospel is your power that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and that we share in that same hope of resurrection when Jesus returns. Please shape our lives by the gospel. Help us to be a church that proclaims the gospel, that partners together and with others in the gospel. Help us to be a church that prays and that sees you working in power in answer to our prayers. Amen.